I'm sure that many, many people in this room, if not all of you, at some point or another in your life have been on an airplane. Uh, my first experience, and I didn't, I didn't fly till I was in college, and the first experience, my first experience with an airplane was uh, a four-seater. Yeah, uh, an aviation technology student at Purdue University took me up. Uh, the, the deal was he'd give me a fun ride if I chipped in on gas, and uh, it was a great, it was a beautiful day. Um, and I just never thought Indiana looked as flat as I did when I was in that plane. <laughs> wow, like a pancake. Anyway, um, I uh, just my natural tendency, I'm interested in how an aircraft works and all of the systems and procedures that are in place to ensure that bad things don't happen. But when I travel in the air, I don't really worry about those things. I worry about navigating the website of the airline, which can be a challenge from time to time. Um, I'm always trying to finagle to get the best deal, and you know, you fly Tuesday at midnight, that's about right. Uh, I worry about getting to the airport on time. I worry about how long the line for check-in will be, and I worry that my, uh, I, I concern myself with making sure that my luggage is not overweight so I don't get the hefty, uh, you know, overcharge fee. I can do this because I know that there are people who get paid and who make it their life's work to make sure that there are not two aircraft on the runway trying to take off at the same time on the same runway. That makes me happy that those people exist. I also know that pilots and ground crew and air traffic controllers are trained to make flying a safe endeavor. At the same time, history has shown us that things like human error, uh, greed, uh, I'm thinking specifically back in the 80s and, and before that where people would hijack aircraft for money, for ransom, some sort of ransom money. Uh, that doesn't happen much anymore. And terrorism have all worked together to make air travel less safe, yet all those systems and procedures over time have adapted to make air travel as safe as it can be. In our text today, the, the early church is taking flight a different way from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. And while we are concerned with their safety and with the sharing of the gospel, there is someone working behind the scenes to ensure that everything is going according to plan. So let's dive into the text and try to understand it. The big question we're going to deal with today is how can God use the evil deeds of men to accomplish his mission of spreading the good news of his son, Jesus. That's really what we see in this text this morning. We're only going to cover three verses, although you could, you could have argued with me and probably uh, convinced me to cover 8, 1 through 4, but today I'll confine myself to 8, 1 to 3. Um, and I'm going, to stick, I'm going to go ahead and stick with the analogy of air travel just for fun, okay? So the first thing we see in the text is what is fuel? What is the fuel? What is... What is driving them to scatter? Let's read the text here, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen's, and there arose on that day. So that's helpful, right? It's helpful because this persecution wasn't like, didn't start with Stephen, and then there was a long period of time, and then, no, no, no. On the very day that Stephen was stoned, this, this next event happened. On, and there arose on that day a great persecution. The word great there in Greek is mega. 
It's where we get the word mega. Anything mega is huge, right? Big. A great, a mega persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Let's just stop right there. The fuel, the thing that was getting Christians up out of their city of Jerusalem, maybe out of their homes, their jobs, you know, their, their land, their property, whatever, the thing that was motivating them to get up and to get out was persecution. Persecution. Uh, the Jewish leadership was going after those who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, what was driving them? Stephen, if we remember, Stephen had just given this long speech, and he had gone back into the Old Testament, starting with Abraham and working his way through Joseph and Moses and even bringing in things like the tabernacle and the temple, had shown uh, had made a good argument that Jesus, this Jesus, was indeed the Messiah that they were waiting for, and yet they rejected him and even murdered him. And then he used some choice words and called them uncircumcised of heart and uncircumcised of ears, meaning, I took that to mean, uh, that they believe what they want to believe and they hear what they want to hear. And in an, in an outrage, they stoned him to death drug him out of the city, and they stoned him. What was driving them? Well, in their world, it was probably what they would consider to be moral outrage. Now, this is tricky because one of the unique things about being a Christian, right? One of the unique things about being a Christian is that Christianity really is, a, is an extension of Judaism, right? We still read in our Old Testament what is today considered to be the Hebrew Bible. Now, I was reading a book. This book was hostile to Christianity. I was reading it last week, and they made a claim in the footnotes that the Hebrew Bible has 15 less books in it than the Old Testament in our Bible. 15 less books. And so I did a little bit of research. It took me like, I don't know, 10 seconds on Google to figure out what they were talking about. Because in the Hebrew Bible... What we call Ezra, the book of Ezra, and the book of Nehemiah, they call Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we consider to be the last 12 books of the Old Testament, which we call the Minor Prophets, 12 different books, they call it the 12, and it's one book. You see, the, see what I'm saying? There's a difference in the table of contents and how the material is arranged, but the, this is the same material. It's the same writings. So the, the Christianity, the following of Jesus Christ, was, is, is an extension of Judaism. In other words, the, the Jews, the Jewish faith, the Jewish prophets, they all predicted the coming of Jesus. It's just that the Jews missed it, chose not to believe it, and Christians chose to believe it and are living in that reality today. And so because they reject, because Jesus was not the Messiah that they were looking for, he was not like David, a mighty man who his military exploits would have been awesome in wiping out the Roman Empire and, and putting Israel back at the pedestal, the, the pinnacle of the civilized world. Jesus wasn't like that. Uh, and because he wasn't like that, he was rejected. In reality, he did something far greater than David could have ever done. He forgave us of our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. 
and made the offer of forgiveness to all who would believe, which is a far, far greater thing than a temporary military victory. But they were outraged at it. They were outraged at, at Stephen for proclaiming this Jesus as the Messiah. They were, uh, why were they upset about such things? They wanted to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. Before we move on to the second point, I thought about this for a fair amount this week, which is what would be the reasons today? If persecution came to the American church, to Delaware Bible Church today, what would be the reasons? And I would argue that they would be very similar reasons. In other words, the Jews, although presented with a very fine argument from Stephen, uh, an argument that made logical sense starting from Abraham and working its all the way, you know, Moses and, and, and here, Jesus is the Messiah. That, that, that argument was just an argument that they, they didn't want to hear. They, they chose not to believe. They stopped, even says they stopped their ears and they cried out with a loud voice like, like a little child. They were unwilling to accept reality. I would argue this morning that Christianity is a reasonable faith. We, we are looking as Christians at the data that's in front of us. You know, uh, what Jesus did in his life, it, what's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're making a, you know, a reasonable decision to, to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, of, of course, we know that God draws us to himself, right? But we are also uh, open to this reality. And in the world that we live in today, if we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be persecuted not because of anything that we're doing, I don't think, but because the world will choose to see us as the enemy that we're not. Let me give you some examples. Uh, here are some typical arguments about Christians that are just not true. One argument is, is that we're haters. Now, the reason they say that is obvious, right? They say that because there are certain sins that we're just not on board well, there's sin in general. We're just not on board with promoting it, to embrace it, to accept it uh, into our lives. Do we tolerate it in the culture? We do. We tolerate it, meaning that we don't, we don't go out there and violently you know, overthrow things and people and whatever. But, but because we hold the opinion that some things are wrong, especially as it pertains to the things that have been talked about here recently, human sexuality, gender, and, and all these things, that we choose to, to believe a biblical understanding, and by the way, an understanding that was even popular in the culture until five minutes ago, because we choose to believe that, we are called haters. Well, in reality, we know that we're actually lovers. Because, but, but you see what happened, the definitions have been changed the definition of love has been changed. Love in the culture today means to, to embrace and accept anything that another person wants us to embrace and accept and even celebrate. But that's not biblical love. See, the good news, the, part of the good news is that God loved us as sinners. Meaning he recognized that we needed to change. That we were broken and yet he chose to love us anyway and offer us salvation, offer us for God to come into our lives in the form of the Holy Spirit and offer us transformation. 
So the biblical definition of love is not to just to accept anything that somebody else wants us to accept, embrace anything that somebody else wants us to embrace, and to celebrate anything else somebody wants us to celebrate. But instead, the biblical definition of love is to, is to will and to work for that which is good for another. As God has defined what is good. We do need to grow. We do need to change. We do need to put off sin and put on godliness. And to want that for another person is love. To work for that for another person is love. And so we're not haters, but that will be the charge that will be leveled against us. And when we try to explain what I just explained to you, we will probably be met with, I can't hear you, you're haters, because we say you are just like Stephen did. Another thing that's commonly leveled at Christians is that we're science deniers. We're science deniers. And I take umbrage with that because I am a trained scientist. But I recognize the limitations of science. Science is inadequate to explain a great many things. And, and, and I, I say this so often, I know you get tired of it, but when I went off to school to study... I thought that we knew 90% of everything about the universe, and we just had to fill in the rest of the 10%. And I came out of university thinking, we may have 10% of this figured out. We may have 10%. There's a great many things that we don't know about this God-created universe. And there's, there's something about we as human beings that is so different that it's impossible for my mind to wrap around, to, to wrap my mind around the reality that we would classify us as just a different species of animal, as the world is so often like to do. And I would even argue that by telling generations of young people, by giving them the secular model of this world, which is we're all the product of a genetic accident. This world doesn't mean, this life doesn't mean anything, and when we die, we just die. That, that after telling that to our children for generations, those chickens are coming home to roost. Because that's not the truth. The truth is, is that we're made in God's image. We're created by the infinite, almighty, all-powerful God. That this life is meaningful. That though we are born in sin, we have an opportunity to come to Christ. To trust Jesus as our Savior from sin. To put off our way of doing life. Which, by the way, the, 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 uh, the, the way of the flesh is a very selfish life. It's all about me and getting what I want. And instead embracing the way of Jesus Christ, which is a way of, of life that says, I'm going to love God with everything that I've got and I'm going to love others as myself. And that's a very counterintuitive way to live to our flesh because our flesh says, yes, I want everything that I want. But when we see, and yet at the same time, when we see someone who lives for themselves, we see often catastrophe, mayhem, broken relationships, shattered lives. But when we see that person who maybe isn't, you know, isn't the best looking, not the most talented, not the most wealthy, but when we see that person who's fully committed to loving God with everything that they've got and loving others as themselves, we oftentimes, oftentimes find someone whose life is rich with relationship. 
who has had a positive impact in the lives of other people and perhaps has even led many or several to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not science deniers. We're just people who recognize that science is inadequate by itself to explain this universe. Last one I'll share before I move on. The next points will go quicker is that I've heard the argument said that, uh, that we as Christians cannot explain the horrors of this world. And I've even heard it said that all of the bad things that happen in this life are all the fault of religion. That's just an out-and-out lie. Have there been things done in the name of God that are evil? Absolutely there have. History is replete with examples of it. But to take a person who, is, uh, who has been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, people that, whose lives have been transformed by God have gone on to start universities so that people can learn the truth about this life. They've gone on to start hospitals so that people who are suffering from physical maladies can be healed. They've gone on to do great things, to, to carry the gospel to places where they packed all their belongings into coffins when they went because they knew that they were likely going to die in the process. That's what a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit will do. And so, uh, if somebody says uh, all the bad things in the world can be explained by religion, then just say, well, then follow me around for a day and you're going to see that it's quite the opposite. The fuel is the fuel of the spread of the gospel in this chapter is persecution. What's the flight plan? The flight plan is they're going to, they're scattering to Judea and Samaria, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, uh, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, but I mean, how many times have we looked at Acts 1-8 where Jesus said that they would be his witnesses and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem. And by the way, we're leaving that stage of the book of Acts. If the book of Acts is divided into three stages, stage one is Jerusalem, stage two is Judea and Samaria, and stage three is the ends of the earth. We're now leaving behind stage one. And next week, we will see really in earnest the beginning of stage two, which is the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria, exactly as Jesus had said. Did these people want to leave their home in Jerusalem? That's debatable. Were they planning to be missionaries to Judea and Samaria? I don't know. All we know is that life was going on. Stephen got stoned and then a whole bunch of Christians. In fact, it says all but the apostles and all could be hyperbole. You know, I'm open to the idea that it was most or I mean, it could have been all. Uh, got up and left Jerusalem and scattered about Judea and Samaria to spread the gospel. Now, I, I wrestled with this quite a bit, but, you know, why did they get up and leave? Wasn't that, the un, wasn't that the cowardly thing to do? Shouldn't they have just stayed in Jerusalem and stood their ground and perhaps even taken up weapons to defend themselves? I would argue that history will prove time and time again that is not how the gospel spreads. So when they were given a choice, they did not choose to suffer they chose to be peaceful. And in order to be peaceful in the city of Jerusalem at that time, they had to leave. 
And so they did. And I, could, I just want to say there's a big difference between accepting suffering, which we are commanded to do, and, and inviting suffering, which is not something that we're commanded to do. In other words, we're not masochistic people here, right? Christians are not. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we remember that the one we are following is the one who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, uh, even Jesus prayed that if it would be in God's will, that, 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 this, that the, the torture that he was about to suffer could pass by. Of course, it wasn't God's will. And that should be our attitude too. If we have an option, we can choose not to suffer but if it's not possible for that to happen, we accept it as God's will. So facing the persecution that they were, the Christians fled and they scattered. They scattered to Judea and Samaria, which was all part of the flight plan that God had laid out. Let's talk about the air traffic control. Let's talk about air traffic control. Very interesting line in this text in verse 1 at the end of verse 1, it says, uh, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The text is very clear to point out that there's a group of people who stayed behind in Jerusalem, and that, that was the apostles. And it's, it's just really interesting. Why were they allowed to stay? Why were they allowed to stay? Now, I always like to tell you when I'm going to foray into some speculation here, and, and I'm, this is not my speculation, but scholars think that the Sanhedrin treated the Jewish believers a little bit differently than they treated the non-Jewish believers or the Hellenists, okay? Stephen was a Hellenist. That's very clear from the text, meaning he was a non-Jewish Christian. The persecution against non-Jewish Christians may have been higher than the Jewish Christians. Reasons why, I don't know. I mean, my speculation is, is that um, uh, the Jews, the Jewish leadership may have reasoned the following. Listen, these men and women were brought up in the Jewish faith. This Jesus, yes, he was a flash in the pan and now he's gone. Eventually, these people will return back to their roots. So let's give them some time and space. But these, but these non-Jewish Christians, they, yeah, they got to get out of here because they're stirring everything up. This Stephen guy, he won't be quiet. Let's kill him and then we'll go after him. I don't know. I don't know. But what we do know is that for some reason they stayed in Jerusalem. And if you remember, these guys are really the keepers of the teach teachings of Jesus. Now, I realize that Jesus told them that um, he, he had told them that the Holy Spirit would remind them of everything that he, he taught them. Uh, but eventually they would go on to put that down on, on in writing. Because how much of the New Testament was written at this red-hot moment? Zero. Zero. So the, these guys are the keepers of the teachings of Jesus. All right, moving on. Number four, the unruly passengers. The unruly, every flight has one, right? Have you ever been on a plane with an unruly passenger? Maybe they're just a little bit mouthy. Check this out. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, 
you're thinking, why, why are these guys the unruly passengers? Well, I'm going to tell you. First of all, these are devout men. <clears throat> these, when, I'm going to just take the text at its, at its word, and these are not men that are instigators. They're not troublemakers. They are good, quality men. These are men who are God-fearing men. Okay, so let's get that in our head. And I need to give you a little bit of background information to tell you why these guys are the unruly passengers. You had the Old Testament law written down. That's, that's in the Old, you know, the Old Testament. Places like uh, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You had the Old Testament law written down. But later on, <clears throat> rabbis would come and they would, they would add commentary and add you know, policies and procedures uh, for the exact adherence to the Old Testament law. And, and that was called oftentimes the Mishnah. And according to, the, there, there is a document called the Mishnah Sanhedrin, and in section 6.5 to 6 of that document, it spells out what you do with someone's body who was stoned for their sin. Okay, you with me? Here's what we do with someone who was stoned to death because of something they did. Here's the regulations. You bury them. You don't have a funeral. You don't have a service. You don't do any lamenting. Back in those days, it was customary to lament. You'd walk around and, you know, you'd, you'd cry out in, in mourning and you'd beat your chest. And, and there was, you know, this was done publicly to lament the, lo the loss of a person. Well, what does the text say? It says, devout men buried Stephen. Now, Stephen, in the, at least in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish council, Stephen had been stoned to death because of his own blasphemy. He had died because of his own sin. So they were supposed to stick him in the ground, bury him. Right? They were not supposed to lament. And so what you have going on here, I believe, is just one verse in the Bible that gives us some indicators of what the public, at least you know, the, the believers, thought of what the Sanhedrin had done. This was unlawful lament, which very, very possibly could have been a form of protest. In having public lament over Stephen... This was a signal to the Sanhedrin that not everyone was going to fall in line with their leadership on this issue. Now, I'm going to use an example from politics in the United States of America. I don't intend to get political, but I intend to make, help you to, to understand what's going on here. If, for example, President Biden made a declaration, let's say he made an executive order, an executive order that was unpopular with 90% of American people, okay? It's just super unpopular, but he made an executive order. What would you expect someone like Nancy Pelosi to say about that executive order? Well, you would expect her to support it. Why? Because she's a political creature doing political things. She's going to support, she's a Democrat, President Biden's a Democrat, she's going to, the Speaker of the House is going to support the President, probably. Same thing on the other side, you know, if you have a, a former president, Donald Trump, and he made an executive order, you would have expected and say that that executive order was unpopular with 90% of the American people. You would have probably expected a guy like Roger Stone to say, oh yeah, I support that 100%. That's a great idea and we should do it immediately because he's a political person. But, and this is hard to say, because a generation ago, 
I could have filled in the blank with a guy like, I don't know, Billy Graham, right? Or, you know, you know, D.L. Moody. If you, if you take a devout man, and who would that be today in the public eye? Al Mohler? Mm. You take a devout man, and a devout man steps forward, a man who has lived his life for a long period of time seeking the truth and uh, being impartial, trying to uh, do what's best, to love others, love God. If a devout, a devout man were to step forward and say, and this is a bad idea, and here's why. As dispassionately as possible, making excellent arguments, the public is probably going to listen to that man. So here we have devout men who are doing that which is unlawful, which is signaling to the Sanhedrin, your leadership is being exercised very poorly. their grip on power was not going to hold up, at least not to those who knew what was going on. And then finally, you've got home, the homeland security agent. The homeland security agent, and of course that person is Saul. Let's look at verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And I'm just going to read verse 4 because it's an encouragement to me in this dark passage Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let's focus on Saul for a minute. Saul was the agent of the Sanhedrin, right? He was like the executive branch, right? The Sanhedrin made a decision, but those guys who sat in that council and made that decision, they probably didn't have to get their hands dirty all that much. No, that was Saul's job. He was the guy that went out and made it happen. In fact, before, when he was before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, and when he was giving his like, life story, uh, Paul then said this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but, then, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to, the fo even to foreign cities. Translation, Saul was not a man who let things go easily. If you uh, presented yourself as a follower of Jesus, even if you fled to a different city, he might make it his mission to track you down. says in the text that they were entering house after house. I don't know if you pay much attention to the news, but in the wake of the recent leak of the maybe, maybe not Supreme Court decision that may or may not, sorry for all the qualifiers, may or may not overturn Roe v. Wade, protesters have been demonstrating outside the homes of a few select Supreme Court justices. It's been argued by some that this is actually illegal because it could influence the court in their work. In other words, the intimidation might get a yes vote to flip to no or a no vote to flip to yes. In other words, there's a way to 
come before the court, make a constructive argument, and then let the judges rule, the justices rule. But instead of doing that, these protesters had decided to show up at the homes of these justices and to make their lives difficult and interrupt the lives of their neighbors in an attempt to intimidate them to get their own way. There's a great story from this, by the way, and the story is that there's one neighbor of one of the justices who, uh, every time there's a protest, they just close their curtain, they open their window, and play hymns on their piano. (laughs) Just lovely hymns. Growing up, I heard that a man's home is his castle. One should be able to think and have opinions and peace within one's own home, right? So dragging people out of their home sends a clear message that certain types of thought will not be tolerated by the Jewish leadership. Then it goes on to say that they were imprisoning women and men. And this is striking because um, um, it's argued by some. I don't know if I'm on board with this yet because the evidence isn't all there. But it's argued by some that when the Jewish leadership would get angry at some folks, they would, they would arrest the men. They would... They would get the men, but they would pretty much leave the women alone, leave, it, leave the women out of it. And here we're seeing that they're dragging out uh, women and men, which makes this a particularly brutal form of persecution, which is likely the reason why so many scattered. By the way, I, I, uh, I'm going to bring this up just because it's out there. It's out there, uh, but I'm, I'm going to bring it up. N.T. Wright is a scholar that I don't, like much of anything that he says, um, but he is a scholar who's gained a lot of prominence in this world. He's written a lot of things, and N.T. Wright takes the position that because women are also being persecuted in Acts chapter 8, that women must have been holding leadership positions within the church and the early church. The argument is that, uh, like I said, during this time, if there was a problem in the Roman Empire, men would be the ones who would take the brunt of the persecution, and women were left largely alone. However, N.T. Wright, one of the things that he's famous for is not footnoting his books, which if you know anything about literature, you know, every time you make a claim in a book, you're supposed to footnote it or, or somehow indicate where you got that information, and he's famous for not doing that. So he was asked how he arrived at his position, and he cited a lecture that he once heard, but he couldn't remember exactly when. He was able to remember the professor. The professor was asked and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So this has all the earmarks of bad logic and sloppy work. I, I just bring it out to say, somebody may come to you and say, look, they persecuted women in Acts chapter 8. That must mean that they were leaders in the church. No, that's not a logical conclusion that we can reach. Here's what we can say. If we look back in history and we see the history of humanity, we see that when women are dragged out of their homes and arrested, it's not so much a mark of the status of those women, but a signal to the depths of of the depravity of the aggressors and what they'll go to in order to make sure that everyone knows that their version of the truth is the only truth that will be tolerated. See Nazi Germany. So Saul, operating on behalf of the Sanhedrin, wanted to make his message loud and clear. Followers of Jesus will not be tolerated. Now, back to, back to the, the main point, I think, of this passage, which is this. 
one could look at this passage and one could say, what a terrible thing that the early church was being persecuted. What a terrible thing. And if one was not careful, one could say, how could there be a God if this is happening to women and men in Jerusalem? How could there even be a God? And I want to just warn you, we cannot think that way. It's not consistent with Scripture at all. Because what we see here is we see a bunch of people that are trying to follow Jesus. And yes, we, we do see persecution coming. We see Stephen's death. And we see the church scattering to Jerusalem and Judea. But all of that is being, and, and even in verse 4, it says that they went about preaching the word. That is all happening in accordance with God's plan. God never promised us peace and prosperity on this earth. In fact, he warned us, Jesus warned us, that there would be trouble. But he also told us that we have overcome, he has overcome the world, right? And we are his followers. And so we should be encouraged by this passage in that our job is to simply be obedient, to love God and to love others. And when the persecution does come and when the church is scattered, to trust that God is still in control because he is. Because he is. And he's going to use these things to accomplish his purposes on the earth. So this is a tough passage to take in. But the answer to the main question today is this, is that God is able to take the evil intentions and actions of men and to use them to execute his own plan. As hard as it is to wrap our minds around it, uh, we do live in a fallen and sin-stained world where a lot of people are driven by the flesh and a lot of people are refusing to even hear logical arguments about the truth. And when we try to make those logical arguments about the truth or we try to argue from Scripture or what the truth is, that we're going to be met with a tremendous amount of emotion as a minimum and even persecution as a maximum. So we should prepare ourselves for it. A couple of things just by way of application is this. is uh, Again, our job is to practice humble obedience to God's word and watch him work. God, God knows what he's doing. And, and I think sometimes I get, I get uh, a little bit arrogant, if I can just be honest with you and confess a little bit. It's like, I need to make these grandiose plans to, to reach Delaware and to reach the world and all this kind of, I, know, I need to be the one to lay these out. No, I need to witness to my neighbor and the unbelievers that I come into contact with every day. Why am I neglecting that to do this thing that's God's job? So where you're at is where God has placed you. The people that you come into contact with are the ones that you're his missionary to. Get after it. And let God be God and watch him work. And then secondly, trust that God is working. Trust that God is working. Now I reference Nehemiah 4.14. You probably, I have the story in my head, maybe you do, maybe you don't, about Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem after the, uh, the Babylonian captivity and beginning to re rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it's hard work. And he's got rebellion from his own people, and he's got foreigners from around the region trying to thwart his efforts and stuff. So he calls everybody together, and he says this. He says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of them, 
And to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them, meaning all your adversaries. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Like, let's start with that. Let's, let's, let's live there first. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who sent the plagues on Egypt, right? This is the God who resurrected his son Jesus after three days in the grave. The same God that's taking the church in Jerusalem that's growing and growing and growing and then scatters it throughout Judea and Samaria to get out the gospel message. He knows what he's doing. Remember him. And then take action, right? Then fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So let's keep these things in mind. I want to just say, in conclusion, just I thank you again for your patience with us this morning to take a vote between the two services. Um, it's just going to make the calendar uh, a lot better. So thank you for participating. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that you've given us to open up your word and study it. And Father, for this wonderful day, pray that you would not allow us to be confused about what our role is, what your role is, to not be disheartened when difficulties come because you told us that they would. And even when very, very difficult trials come upon us, you told us that was going to happen too. But let us be people who speak the truth. Let us be people who proclaim the name of Jesus. And let us be people who demonstrate the name of of Jesus, all that he was and stood for, all that he taught in our own individual lives as well. Loving God with everything that we've got, loving others as ourselves as we travel this world together. In Jesus' name, amen.